There were thousands of police, thousands of plainclothes officers, the National Guard was there at the ready. You know, it was a real conflict, a, a real violent conflict that was going on in the streets of Chicago. August 28th, 1968. Violence erupted at the Democratic National Convention, continuing the protest movements that broke out on college campuses across the country that year. I'm Philip Martin, and this is Heat and Light. We bring you the stories you may not have heard about last century's most pivotal year, 1968. We have a pointing device called a mouse. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? I was barely a teenager back then, growing up in the heart of Detroit, smack in the middle of Detroit, off 12th Street. And my hometown was hurting, really hurting. We were reeling from one of the deadliest uprisings in our nation's history. Residents were pushing back against a whole lot of ills. Are being fired on 12th Street. The Viet Cong simultaneously attacked just about. President Kennedy has been shot. Is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis? You know some of these stories: the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, the Vietnam War. We're going to tell you different ones here about the heat that sparked an uprising outside the 1968 Democratic National Convention, the light that brought the first interracial kiss to American television. We're going to bring you these stories from the people who know them best, people who were so deeply impacted by the events of that year that they've devoted their entire lives to studying them. In this first episode, we're talking about the rise of student activism in the U.S., and how the idealism of young, privileged people sparked protests across the country and all over the world. We're going to start by talking about the student takeover, some say, started it all, in April 1968, at Columbia University in New York City. And we have Professor Stefan Bradley with us from Loyola Marymount University. Stefan studies student protest in the Ivy League. And I want to thank you for joining us, Stefan. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Can you describe what happened that day? Yeah, it was really just a confluence of all the major issues of the 1960s that arrived at the sundial on campus there at Columbia University. Radical members of the Students for a Democratic Society were, were holding a, a rally. Members of the Students Afro-American Society showed up. One of the rallying cries was to stop the construction of this gymnasium in the park, in Morningside Park, the only landmass that separated the university and, and Harlem. I don't think a gym nine stories high with facilities for black people in the basement with a back door is something that black people want. The problem was, Columbia had established such a terrible relationship with Harlem with regard to expansion and displacement of residents that the idea of, of constructing a gymnasium in a park that mostly black and brown people in Harlem used was just a, a bridge too far. Many other people had come. This had, this had been a, a couple weeks after the assassination of Martin King. And so students, uh, as they were getting 
amped up, decided that they wanted to take over a campus building. Um, Part of the reason they were taking over the campus building was to protest against the discipline actions taken against students who had demonstrated against uh, the university's ties to, to war research. Number three, breaking of all faculty and administrative ties with IDA. And uh, other sorts of folks came in support of the students' efforts to push against the gymnasium and to push against the Institute for Defense Analyses. Yeah, it was it was this uh, institute that they were trying, Absolutely. that they were protesting, which uh, seemed to have direct ties to research for uh, in military research, but also directly to the Vietnam War. Absolutely. And how did they take over the... The campus, uh, these these um, disparate organizations. Well, you know, after a failed attempt at taking over a campus building, they went to the gym site. There, they had confrontation with police. We have been informed that the police department will take all the necessary action in connection with our complaint against you. They think they talk to you one minute and they hit you the next. And then came back to the campus and took over. The, the building which happened to house the dean's office. And so the dean actually was, in a way, taken hostage during the demonstration. So these movements sort of converged. Yeah, so, so the, at issue were the, as I mentioned before, the, the main issues of the, the 60s, this idea of the Vietnam War uh, um, and the use of the university in, in defense research, uh, but also institutional racism. So those things collided and gave you know, different groups a reason to, to coalesce together to, to push against what they thought was injustice. And there were, I understand there were like, they, they had occupied um, over a course of a week about five buildings. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. But but I think the most notable part of it is is initially it was an integrated, uh, racially integrated uh, demonstration. But by the, the nighttime of April 23rd, the Students Afro-American Society had asked the mostly white uh, members of the Students for a Democratic Society uh, to leave the building. The black community was there and that that particular building would be a building for black people and SAS asked the, the members of uh, SDS to leave. And so, how, how, did that, how did that go over with, uh, with SDS? <laughs> uh, what began as a, at least uh, a convergence of, of movements and uh, ideas where folks could uh, sort of come together. Uh, now they're being asked to, to basically play a secondary role. How did that go over? Well, I think something like this happened on a larger stage. Uh, SNCC, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, had asked uh, white activists to do the same, to go organize in white communities if they were really serious about uh, eradicating racism, then they would go and organize in white communities. This was the same argument that the students, Afro-American society made to the students for a democratic society. And so uh, this hurt uh, some members of the the students for a democratic society, but they understood that uh, having a, a building for black students and black community members alone uh, would be very effective in terms of the demonstration and uh, increasing the volume where the resonance of the protest by taking over more buildings would be would be beneficial as well. You have to assume that um, 
you have these privileged white kids who are protesting for the welfare of people of color. And uh, how was that perceived, though, by the media when you have um, uh, black uh, activists actually asking their ostensibly, at least, their allies to leave the building. That's one of the best parts about this story is that uh, the groups, while they demonstrated separately, remained unified in their in their protest. Uh, one of the things that, that became critical about this is, is just the timing of everything. And that's why I say it was a confluence of, of all of these different things. That it was a couple of weeks after the assassination of Martin King, people could remember quite clearly seeing buildings in Harlem burn from Columbia. You could see that. The black students of Columbia University. So when it was only black students and black community members in Hamilton Hall, been in Hamilton Hall for 56 hours. the president has to call the mayor of New York City and, and ask, you know, what should we do? And the mayor says, look, we don't want another set of uprisings like we had when King was assassinated, and so don't harm those students. Morale is high. So, so, yeah, I think that some of the, the people around town thought that it was a bunch of spoiled kids in the buildings, particularly the white students. I remember uh, in researching some police officers saying that, that um, and these were mostly white Irish uh, uh, working class police officers, saying that the kids need to be spanked and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. I think it's also really interesting that um, not only were the police pushing back against these students, uh, but they were also construction workers, uh, working class construction workers on the campus also pushing back against the students. Absolutely. And so that was that was a, a major point of contention. So SDS members were pleading with some of the construction workers and the police, explaining to them that that we're doing this more uh, for the for the working class than anybody else. It's a hard sell, though, because uh, those in particularly the white working class seeing these students who have an opportunity to go to Columbia University, an Ivy League school, they want their children to go to an Ivy League school. They want the opportunity to, to achieve middle class and upper elite uh, class uh, success. And so there was this conflict. And then, of course, there were counter protesters, uh, students on campus as well. Around the same time, we saw demonstrations at Berkeley, which was a center of uh, activists um, uh, protesting the war and for black empowerment. Uh, You saw uh, demonstrations occurring uh, in Boston at uh, places like Brandeis and, and at Harvard. But why did it resonate out of Columbia? What was Columbia's, um, uh, why did Columbia play such a pivotal role in what became an expansive student protest across the country? Well, as I tell my students, everything takes place in time and space. And so uh, 1968 was the year there was a certain zeitgeist in the air with uh, activism being the, the call for the day. But the fact that Columbia University is is in the media capital of the world, that it's in New York City, the you know some people say the you know the the, the world's metropolis, mm-hmm. um, the that it was next to Harlem, which was you know the mecca of Black America. That space part of the story is essential, and so what was happening at Columbia was pretty much a local 
issue. But everything that happens in New York City is an issue for the United States because the New York Times, you know, is there. The, you know, all of the major publications are there and they were all on campus interviewing people and taking pictures. And some some of these pictures that went out, uh, they went out all over the world. And so eventually, uh, you know, students in Czechoslovakia and in uh, France and in um in Latin America, in the Caribbean, Mexico City, for Mexico example. City in '68, they were shouting two, three, many Colombias. And you also had, of course, um, a lot of activity happening on historically black uh, college campuses that didn't get a lot of play then. And historically, uh, uh, we suffer from selective amnesia when we're talking about it now. At Howard, for example, mm-hmm. uh, there were student protests. Talk about that, Stefan. Yeah, no, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, and, and this is such a, a, a neglected part of the history, of the narrative. Black student activists were at the forefront of this, this, this student protest movement, and so on historically black campuses, there was quite a movement afoot. So you mentioned Howard University. Um, There was a a movement where Howard students wanted to make Howard a black university. They took over campus buildings. This was a month before um, the campus buildings were taken over at Columbia University. And some of the Columbia students were actually there at the Howard protest. And so they, they gained inspiration from that. These kinds of things are important, but they've been left out of the narrative. Now, what was happening on these campuses? Campuses in terms of ideology, in terms of the administration. Uh, Howard wanted uh, to be more like a black Harvard, and the students wanted to be more like a black Howard. Right. Uh, and so we have to assume that Howard's curriculum was still based on um, a very old 20th century concept of what it meant to be um, to be successful and at a black university. Mm. No, you're absolutely right. And so here at a black institution, uh, the focus was on Western civilization and refining oneself uh, so as to, uh, to, to, to be able to compete with uh, white Americans and to, to, to enter uh, the white working world and, and that sort of thing. Uh, students were pushing against the, the rather authoritarian nature of these HBCUs. Women couldn't leave campus without escorts and you had to wear jackets to, you know, uh, certain things. And so all of that in the minds of the students had little to do with what was relevant to the needs of black people. And so with the rise of black power, this, this larger movement that was, that was looming and invading campuses all over the United States, uh, institutions of higher education couldn't shut out this, this social movement. And so, so what was going on at uh, what was, what's considered the, the hallmark uh, uh, Ivy League College, Harvard? What was happening at Harvard in 1968? In 1968, at Harvard, there were students who were pushing uh, for uh, an African-American studies program or a black studies program at the time. By that time, by 68, Yale had agreed uh, to, to start a black studies program. And so in the Ivy League, these are eight institutions that that uh, compete against each other, mostly. <laughs> and so the fact that, that Yale had agreed to a black studies program um, uh, catalyzed some of the students there at Harvard University. So that was one of the things. Harvard, like Columbia, was expanding 
expanding into the neighborhoods of um, of Cambridge uh, and Roxbury, um, Roxbury and right. Roxbury, which was a mostly black neighborhood there uh, in the Boston area. And as a result, uh, people were displaced and students took up this this campaign against the university displacing residents. And so that was part of it. Another part of it, too, uh, and this is common throughout the United States, was this push against uh, having recruiters on campus, having the the reserved officer uh, training corps, yeah, uh-huh. ROTC on campus, and so there were uh, major pushes against that in '68. But but really, things didn't unfurl until 1969, and that's when uh, there was a strike on Harvard's campus. They're attacking the doors on the other side. Now the people who were spectators before are shouting, Rossi must go. The policemen are milling around at the foot of the stairs, swinging their nightsticks, apparently to... One of the students leading this takeover of Harvard's campus was Michael Kazin, who's now a historian at Georgetown University and teaches a class on the social movements of the 1960s. The night before SDS occupied an administrative building on campus in April of 1969, Kazin and his fellow student activists held a big meeting in a lecture hall. I was the chair of the meeting because I was co-chair of SDS at the time, and and I want I thought we should take the building, but a lot of people didn't want us to, so I kept I kept the meeting going as long as possible, kept holding more and more votes, very manipulative on my part, uh, to make sure the vote went the right way, and then we had a um, we had demands uh, including abolishing ROTC and Black Studies Department, a few other demands. Uh, I was I sort of uh, channeled Martin Luther where he. He tacked, uh, was nailed some demands uh, on the, the door of a church. Well, I nailed our demands on the door of the president of Harvard University, Nathan Pusey's door. Um, uh, early in the morning the next day, 6 a.m., 7 a.m., we went to University Hall, uh, took the deans out of University Hall and asked all the secretaries and other administrative personnel to leave and then took over the university. Wait, wait, wait. You took, again, you took him out literally, right? Well, I didn't. Actually, it was, it was uh, uh, members of the Maoist faction in SDS. I guess they were channeling uh, the People's Liberation Army in China or something. They wanted to show that their contempt for the deans, and so they actually picked them up and carried them out. That's, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to imagine that. Uh, I'm just trying to imagine that uh, that scene, you know, carrying him out in a, on, a, on a chair, on a couch, or what? I mean, on a, on a, on a slab? I mean, just, what, no, what physically. Exactly physically, they, they picked them up, up, put them on their shoulders, and carried them out because uh, they refused, the deans refused to go out, you know, uh, voluntarily. We kept wondering whether the police were going to come, and we expected them to come because we actually were breaking the law. Policemen are pushing out the demonstrators at the doors. So I volunteered to go outside to see if the police were coming, and lo and behold, uh, when I was outside the building, in came the police uh, into Harvey Yard. Swinging their nightsticks, apparently, to encourage... Uh, I threw a bottle at one of the policemen who cracked me over the head with his nightstick. So, uh, with my scalp bloodied, I stood on... This sounds a little self-aggrandizing, but this is what happened. I stood on the steps of Widener Library in the middle of Harvard Yard, made a little speech calling on the students who were coming to Harvard Yard to protest the police to start a strike against Harvard University. Policemen are pushing spectators, bystanders. They're pushing everybody who's anywhere in sight. A fight is breaking out now downstairs. They're trying to clear the stairs. Kazin says the Harvard takeover of 1969 was inspired by the Columbia protest of April 1968, which in turn were inspired by Howard University students' activism earlier that year. But because New York is the media hub of the world, 
The protests there reached far and wide. Czechoslovakia, Mexico, the Caribbean, back home in the United States, outside of college campuses. This is the Democratic National Convention in August 1968. The party had announced its nominee for president, Hubert Humphrey, a candidate who hadn't won any primaries and who leftists believed wasn't enough of a liberal to carry the election or stop the war. Outside the convention, violent protests broke out and were met with police brutality. There were about 10,000 people in this demonstration, most of them students. Kazan was one of them. He got arrested for protesting there. What was the biggest lesson for you out of Chicago? Well, I was scared as hell. <laughs> I mean, the, Chicago felt like an armed camp. There were thousands of police there were, uh, who were in uniform. There were uh, thousands of plainclothes officers. The National Guard was there at the ready. You know, it was a real conflict, a, a real violent conflict that was going on in the streets of Chicago. And most of the violence was uh, directed by the police against demonstrators. But, you know, to be fair, demonstrators were committing some property violence as well. And the police uh, wanted to stop that. And some police, you know, were willing to, it's, at least it seemed, willing to, uh, uh, to kill some demonstrators to stop it. No demonstrators were actually killed, but uh, the threat was there. The danger was there. So when I got back to New York, where my parents lived, I, I actually kissed uh, the pavement <laughs> in Manhattan, thanking uh, my stars for, for surviving. And why did you join um, uh, SDS, uh, Students for a Democratic Society? I joined because uh, of the war uh, in Vietnam. The war in Vietnam seemed to be a obscenity, uh, which um, thousands, later on millions of Vietnamese were, were dying uh, in a struggle to stop the United States from conquering their country. Uh, and it seemed to be uh, also a, uh, a real betrayal of the liberal, uh, capital D, democratic values and loyalties that I had growing up. Now, a lot of students, of course, joined because of um, the draft and the feeling that they might be drafted. You're saying that you were feeling what was happening in Vietnam in a very personal way. Yeah, I mean, I was an idealist. Uh, I still am, I think. Uh, yeah, I believe that uh, my country, the United States, had had been on the good, on the right side in uh, World War II. I wasn't quite sure about Korea, but the more I learned about what was happening in Vietnam, uh, the more I believed that we were on the very wrong side. In fact, at the time, I would have said the U.S. was as guilty in Vietnam as uh, Germany was in World War II. Also, the fact that it was liberals, Democrats, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, who were prosecuting uh, this war, made it even worse because that was my background. My parents were big supporters of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. And so this was sort of a betrayal of, of uh, all the ideals I had growing up. Kazan was there. He was involved because this was the movement of his time. But Bradley has devoted his life to studying this period even though he was born after it was over.
So what, why are you focused in on uh, 1968 and why are you focused on student movements? Why, um, what's, what stirs your interest? What brought you to this point? Well, I, you know, when I was in college, I went to a small college uh, in the Northwest, um, and I was one of maybe 15 black students. And Where'd, where'd you go? I went to Gonzaga University. Gonzaga oh, yeah. University. Now, now a basketball powerhouse, right? Exactly. And so they were starting to get hot when I was there. Uh, and uh, I only wish that I had the opportunity to play on the team, but I was about <laughs> 40 pounds light. And so uh, anyhow, but, but, but one of the things that happened when we were there is uh, some of the black students had received threats. Uh, and uh, it was a, a big deal. And as a result, uh, I found myself as, as, as one of the one of the officers of the Black Student Union meeting with administrators at seven in the morning and, and all kinds of meetings, meetings, meetings. And I had to, and I stopped and thought, like, I couldn't be the first one to be going through all of this. And so that's when I really started to, to study, uh, study student protest. And to me, I was just fascinated with the idea that, that um, eventually that, that students at Ivy League schools would risk their opportunity to to protest for something. And I tried to figure out, like, what would I be willing to sacrifice? Uh, what issue would I be willing to sacrifice, uh, you know, the, the well-being of my future family for? When you t- when we talk about student protest, uh, 50 years seemed like yesterday. And when you consider what, what's happening around the country today, we've seen um, protests around Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. Me Too. Uh, recently, students at uh, Parkland uh, mm. uh, High School uh, have basically sparked a movement against handguns uh, and, uh, I guess, broader issues. What do you see as those connections? Well, I think one of the things is is um, in order sometimes for society and civilization to jolt forward, there has to be a group of people who are not um, enamored with tradition and 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 um, I don't know, uh, with the, the, the proper rules and rigidity. I think that, that the young people today, like many of the young people in the 1960s, are willing to challenge authority in ways that we haven't seen in decades. It, it, uh, you know, but, you know, it seems like they, uh, students in 68, it seems like they had more to lose. Mm-hmm. And it seems like they were up against more formidable, uh, if you will, opposition, mm-hmm. uh, given how police were shooting folks left and right mm-hmm. uh, national mm-hmm. guard mm-hmm. Uh, we years later we would know about kent state uh, yeah and so how do you compare those uh, the, those movements uh, with what you have to lose well i think i think you hit the nail on the head i think when students started to see people like trayvon martin and michael brown and and uh freddie gray and um sandra bland all of these people having these run-ins with uh, police officers, they started to think outside of themselves on campus. And so there had always been problems with uh, with individual acts of racism on campus and, and that sort of thing. But what students in the 60s and this current generation of students are, are doing exceptionally well uh, is thinking in terms of systems. And so they started to recognize a prison industrial complex and, and mass incarceration. This awareness of somebody outside of self has, uh, has, has, has been reborn uh, in this era. And, and I'm excited for it. I'm very excited. And I don't want to sound condescending, but I'm proud of a lot of the young people 
who are taking up these issues that that some of us older people have have let slide uh, the issues with with gun violence and that sort of thing. This has been happening in the black community for a long time, and so I'm now I'm glad that these uh, young black people in urban areas will be able to coalesce with students from Parkland and and other areas as they're worried about about dying. Uh, and you know, in '68 there was a different kind of dying they were worried about. That is, if we get kicked out of college, uh, we're going to war. Uh, in in Vietnam in a place that we may not be able to find on the map and so that draft was was in your face at the time. Brantley's experiences with student protest have continued into recent years. In fact, he was teaching at St. Louis University the year Michael Brown was killed in the nearby suburb of Ferguson. Before before this, I, I wasn't the kind of guy that you would catch in the street pumping my fist or anything like that. I was more than satisfied to write letters to Congress people and to senators and, and things like that. But but disrupting, um, you know, disrupting traffic, shutting down streets and things like this was nothing that I I was uh, participating in in any major way before. But when my students called me the night that uh, there was a gas station uh, caught a fire uh, there and uh, my students called me and told me that the police had pepper sprayed and uh, tear gassed and, and, and shot uh, rubber pellets at, at one of my students. Uh, I knew then that I would have to go out with them. And so I stayed out with them for almost a year. And so I didn't understand, and I'm saying this in all sincerity, I didn't understand until I was running from armored personnel vehicles with with uh, police officers with AR-15 rifles uh, trained on us. And, and until I smelled the tear gas and couldn't, couldn't breathe and and until uh, until I saw people being handled in such a way I couldn't quite understand it until that very moment and so I learned good lessons there very good lessons So what can today's movements learn from 1968? I think there's there's two major lessons. One is uh, an awareness of something outside of self. I think that that's so important, and that's something that that students in 68 uh, had, is an awareness outside of self. But the other part of this, and this works particularly well for the uprising at Columbia University, that is the ability to coalesce. That is, um, students, uh, black students and black people were able to, 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 to do their own thing, but they had uh, uh, alliances with the radical white students. They had alliances with uh, conservationists and preservationists uh, who didn't want a gymnasium in a park. Uh, they had alliances with, um, with uh, politicos uh, and that sort of thing. And, and eventually they had alliances with, with just mothers and uh, people who use the park. And so, so that kind of uh, coalition is necessary for victory. Co- co- coalition uh, so, but tension, because you even have situations now yeah. where Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter, uh, uh, mm-hmm. in trying to assert the, uh, the leadership of black uh, and African-American students and uh, workers and individuals, oftentimes uh, will say that we want this to be led by black folk um, uh, to the mm-hmm. exclusion of uh, their white allies. 
is that a is that advisable? Is that the the best way to assert leadership on campus or otherwise? Well, I'm not sure I interpret it that way. I think uh, part of part of the call is for black people to be in the vanguard of issues that affect right. black people. Uh-huh. And I think that that's legit. I think that's legitimate. Uh, I think that there's work to be done uh, because there's, you know, people didn't learn lessons from the past. <laughs> they didn't do enough reading. They didn't do enough remembering. And some of the people from the past didn't tell enough stories. Stephen Bradley, folks, a professor of African-American studies at Loyola University. That's Marymount in Los Angeles. Stefan, I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Heat and Light. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and tweet us at Heat Light Pod. On our next episode, we'll tell you about a radical take on the 1968 Miss America pageant. Heat and Light is a production of The Conversation U.S. Learn more about us at heatlightpod.com or check the show notes. Our show is produced and engineered by Maria Muriel. Our associate producer is Jonathan Gang. And our executive producer is Maria Belinska. Our theme music is by Kenny Kusiak. I'm Philip Martin. See you next time. If you're enjoying listening to Heat and Light, you should check out The Ant Hill, a podcast from our colleagues over at The Conversation UK. Each episode digs into research relating to a different theme. Here's a clip from Britain's astronomer royal, Martin Rees, explaining how physicists' search for nothing led to some surprising results. Empty space, although it seems to be nothing to us, that is just in the same way that Water may seem to be nothing to a fish because it's uh, what's left when you take away other things floating in the sea. Um, So nothing uh, in the sense of empty space is, we realize, quite complicated. And so we have to look deeper to actually uh, satisfy the philosophers. I think it's very important to bear in mind that the philosopher's nothing is not the same as a physicist's vacuum. That's The Anthill, available wherever you get your podcasts and at theconversation.com slash podcasts.